2: Girl, real talk.
0: This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let
1: me know how it goes. You know, I wrote this piece when Philip Roth died that was kind of a, um, I don't know, it was like kind of in a persona a little bit. And I really love Philip Roth and he means a lot to me. Um, but in order to to write that, I think I had to use my sort of fiction skills, you know, and sort of make it funny and make it a little bit glib. Um, and that felt exciting too, to be like, oh, I, even if I'm, you know, this is like all true but you can still take a tone you can still kind of find a an angle it doesn't have to be like this is all like coming straight from the center of my heart
3: I'm Jordan Kissner author of the essay collection Thin Places and this is Thresholds a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Andrew Martin is a writer of fiction and criticism. He's the author of a novel called Early Work, and a collection of short stories called Cool for America. His fiction is often described as having a politics of cool. He's been called an emblematic author of the millennial novel. Max Ross writing... uh, in the Paris Review in 2018, described a distinct ethos to Andrew's fiction. He writes, The characters in early work, Andrew Martin's debut novel, are poets, playwrights, film buffs, grad students, adjunct college instructors, 30-ish, liberal, well-read. They like drinking, screwing, smoking cigarettes, Michael Jackson, Kanye West— top us. But the simple act of liking anything isn't simple for them. Most of their pleasures are guilty ones. I got to talk to Andrew about the chaotic period of his life that led to these two books and the characters that populate them. And in particular, we got to talk about the way he uses what critics have called his irony, humor, coolness, or sharpness to soften the edges of the emotional content he hopes to really get at.
1: For me it was about uh my parents were in the midst of getting divorced um and I had gotten into this program that was across the country um and I had grown up all over the country um but had lived in New Jersey and New York for kind of my formative years from age 10 to 26 and I'd never been to Montana never spent any time out west um and suddenly like in the midst of this sort of family calamity, uh, and early on in a new relationship, uh, with my now, uh, spouse, um, I moved across the country by myself, uh, to a place I'd never been before where I didn't know anyone and just didn't know even like the basics of how people conducted themselves. Uh, and then in the midst of that time, uh, my partner and I broke up for a while. My parents were splitting up. My family was sort of falling apart. My relationship was falling apart. Uh, and I think it did inspire just, a a kind of fearlessness in me, just a new kind of a feeling of kind of fuck it. Um, now's the time to, to dig deep and find as much truth and as much weirdness and darkness in your work as you can. Um, and then things in my life improved in many ways. <laughs> my partner and I got back together. My parents found new people. I moved back east. Uh, but I think somehow that period of, of tumult and darkness really carried forward into my work from there in a way that I think was really useful, even though it was really painful. I mean, I, I think I had pictured you know, I don't know, a cattle ranch or something. (laughs) I pictured (laughs) a a rodeo. I don't know. I I didn't even really understand what I was getting into. Um, but I went and visited, uh, the, the town of Missoula, like the month before I was going to move there to, to find an apartment and meet some people and whatever. Um, and it just, it was extremely surreal for one thing you know, it was mid July, I think. And, uh, it stays dark and it stays light out rather till about like 10 PM. Um, so I, I arrive, uh, and I'm, you know, going to meet a few people in the program for lunch. And it's like this, I don't know, a group of people who feel like they, they stepped out of a Sofia Coppola movie or something, this like beautiful group of young men and women, uh, wearing like, I don't know, summer prairie dresses and like Western wear. Uh, and, you know, suddenly we're, we're out at the bars until, you know, two in the morning. And it's like, you know, bright as daylight until 10 PM. Something about it just felt very disruptive and very magical. And also a little bit, uh, I don't know, not frightening, but I just felt immediately like, oh, this is nothing like what I'm used to. And also nothing like what I was picturing. It was somehow something in between in a really fun and weird way.
3: Hmm. And, I mean, did you find the process of moving there? I mean, did it feel like entering that kind of magic or was it dislocating or, I mean, I would imagine actually perhaps it was both at the same time.
1: It was both. Um, so to move there, uh, I drove across the country with Laura, um, my partner and, you know, we stopped in all these towns along the way and we, we, and the, um, the Sturgis motorcycle rally was going on in South mm. Dakota. Um, so everywhere we went in the middle of the country, we were surrounded by hordes of bikers, um, <laughs> who were having a ball and we're all really kind. Uh, but it was, it was funny. It was like kind of no room at the end everywhere we went. Um, we kept finding ourselves sort of camping on the outskirts of national parks. Um, because the bikers uh had taken all the all the rooms and all the major campsites. Uh and so it did just feel like this like kind of initiation into a new world. Um and and we went to the Montana State Fair where we witnessed a demolition derby for the first time. Wow. Uh, I don't know if have you ever seen a demolition derby?
3: Not in person, no. Uh
1: it was crazy. It was Beyond my wildest imaginings, uh, people just crash junked cars into each other until every single car is undriveable because they've either caught on fire or, you know, broken so much that they can't drive anymore. Um, and so this goes on for like, I don't know, two hours maybe of, of like you know, 15 cars just like crashing into each other over and over again and people running out of them when they catch fire and the cars are being sprayed down. And uh, it was, and no one got hurt. I don't think, I mean, surely they did get hurt, but not visibly hurt. Um, it felt, I don't know, this is, this is a long way of saying, I just felt like a, in, in a completely foreign country, honestly, more than I have when I've like been in, Actual foreign countries, a lot of the time, it's like we speak the same language, but uh, our understanding of the world seems to be like rather different. Um,
3: yeah, just touch. It's definitely different from New Jersey.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, uh, and then lived in in New York for a, for a few years. I went to college in New York, and then lived here. Um, and so, it, but but there was something so useful, uh, to me intellectually about, uh, being in a place that was so completely different than what I was used to, because it wasn't like, oh, you moved to Chicago, you know, like it's a city, like you go like meet the people. I mean, and I still granted I was in an MFA program. So it was a lot of other writers and intellectuals, but just the sort of having to figure out what kind of person you were and like how you were going to fit into this community, uh, felt, felt like a very different experience than if I'd moved to more of a city city, you know?
3: Yeah. And earlier you were talking about how that, that time of kind of arriving and then, you know, going through this family tumult and separating from your partner had been this kind of dark free for all in which you were then able to say, okay, you know what, like, fuck it, let's just get into my work or do some things in my work that feel maybe felt risky before. And now it's just worth taking the risks. Um, what were those, what was that like? What was the, what were the things that you had been holding back from doing before, um, in writing that, that you found yourself feeling like, well, fuck it, let's try it.
1: I think the story that felt like a real breakthrough to me is one that was ended up being called the Christopher or with the Christopher kids. Um, And it's about two siblings who are um, both kind of dealing with drug and alcohol problems and they're home uh, at their parents' house for Christmas, at their mother's house for Christmas. And the parents have recently gotten divorced and the narrators uh, in the middle of a breakup. And, and, you know, nothing in the story is, is literally true as far as the activity, but it was, it was, it felt really cathartic and also really scary to be writing about, uh, substance dependence, which I, I wouldn't say I've ever had a serious addiction problem, but I've had times in my life when I've overused substances in a really unhealthy way. And my sister, uh, who's sober, um, went through a really really difficult period with that as well um so somehow unlocking that and tying it also to these relationship disruptions and the the family disruption no, just putting it down on paper um it, it felt like entering a new place and i and i think i'd been really holding a lot in with regard to to my feelings about my family and uh my relationship and, and my sister who I'm very, very close with. And so trying to, you know, finding a way to transmute it through fiction instead of just, you know, phone calls and, and whatever uh, it just felt exciting um, to, to, to be there, to finally be in that place, you know, And, and I kind of had to twist it and make it funny and, and sort of have a little bit of swagger to it, you know, to make it feel, like something I could look at head on. Like I couldn't just look at it the way I really feel, which is full of, you know, sorrow and empathy. But I kind of had to make, I think one of the breakthroughs that I then used in a lot of my other work was to sort of give give my characters a little bit of callousness, uh, to give them a little bit of an edge that is obviously in me somewhere, but isn't my first line of reaction, you know? Does that make sense?
3: It totally does. And I, I love that story. I'm, I'm glad it's one you wanted to talk about. Um, and what you're saying now about needing to give the characters or the story a little bit of edge or a little bit of humor, almost to, to, so that you can look more directly at the things that are hard about what the characters are going through, the sort of genuine, um, tragedies or existential crises or whatever makes so much sense because that feels to me like a thread in all of your work that I've read that there I mean it's your work I find like spectacularly funny even if the even if what's happening itself isn't quite funny even if what's happening itself is a little sad or a little dark or or I don't know any any number of things so that that sort of tracks in a way or makes sense to hear you say that that's that that humor or that edge or however you want to call it is something that's put there so that you can actually engage harder harder material than might feel comfortable if you were just going in like n- nakedly emotional or empathic
1: Yeah I mean I I, I tried when I was in graduate school, I was in a nonfiction class and I tried to write a more sort of like straightforward memoir essay about my family and about my sister. Um, And, and it was just kind of dead on the page. Uh, And, and I've, you know, I've written a lot of nonfiction. I've written a lot of book reviews and personal essays, but I always you know, it's, it's always, there's always some frame, you know, and, and there's always some persona. And I know that's always true in nonfiction, but, you know, I I tried to really write like a very straightforward essay about my life and it just, I just couldn't bring it to life. Um, and I, and I've just found that, that giving it the fictional frame, giving it this edge, this irony, uh, just changes it and brings it to life for me in a way that, that it doesn't for me as a, as a nonfiction writer. And I think the great thing about writing the, the kind of fiction I do, which is, you know, autobiographical, but not auto fiction, you know, it's drawing on my life and feelings and situations. And the characters are often writers and thinkers and artists of some kind is, um, you know, like some of it, is my deepest held <laughs> feelings and thoughts. And a lot of it is, uh, not, and, and, you know, I, I love not feeling any obligation to distinguish which, which are the things that I right. feel in my heart and, and which aren't, you know, there, there are like some really true things in these characters, inner monologues that I've worried about and and thought. And there are some where I'm like, Oh God, like this is, terrible what he's thinking here. Like I should, I should keep that. Like, that's interesting, (laughs) you know? Um, (laughs) and, uh, I don't know. I I have found like a, there's a couple of nonfiction pieces I've written where I've been able to access that distance and where I also can feel like, well, you know, I'm being a little bit glib here, but this is my essay persona. So, you know, like I'm not gonna worry that much about like what my, you know, I, I wrote this piece when Philip Roth died that was, kind of a, um, I don't know. It was like kind of in a persona a little bit. And I really love Philip Roth and he means a lot to me. Um, but in order to, to write that, I think I had to use my sort of fiction skills, you know, and sort of make it funny and make it a little bit glib. Um, and that felt exciting too, to be like, Oh, I, even if I'm, you know, this is like all true, but you can still take a tone. You can still kind of find a an angle. It doesn't have to be like this is all like coming straight from the center of my heart.
3: Right. It's like putting on clothes as opposed to walking in <laughs> naked. You know, it's like choosing choosing the outfit you want to be wearing into the into the essay.
1: I really admire writers, and uh, I would include you among them who 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 have a more sober who can, who can have a more sober bearing, uh, than, than I seem to be able to have so far in my nonfiction, <laughs> you know, uh, you I would like, like to discover that.
3: You don't feel like your nonfiction has a sober bearing? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean,
1: I think like the, the book reviews often do because you're sort of, I feel like I'm a little bit like back in, back in class, you know, writing my essay. Right. Um, you're in critic I, drag. Yeah, exactly. But uh, to write about more about my life, I feel like it would be nice to to find a way to address it a little bit more head on. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, it's good to have goals.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like something to th- to do in the future, maybe if you feel like it.
1: Um, there was this this very offhand line that a critic wrote mentioning me and he said something like these like unironic characters and he was basically like accusing me of being earnest um and it was just really interesting because it was the the only like every every other and it it feels a little gauche to be talking about what people have written about you but I don't know whatever uh here we are talking about ourselves um it, it just felt really surprising and almost revelatory because every, every other critical reaction was like these irony drenched millennials who can't speak about their true feelings. And this other guy thought that in fact, there was like clearly like a very earnest, uh, thing running through the, the pieces. And I don't think he necessarily meant it kindly, but I, um, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting to realize that, that, Underneath the facades of these characters and underneath my own facade as a writer, I do think I'm like a very earnest person and someone who is like really trying to get at, you know, what what it is to be a person and, and what it is to be happy and on all this kind of old fashioned corny stuff. Um, but the only way I can really get at it is, is through these sort of layers of, of humor and irony and callousness.
3: Why do you think, not to turn this into a therapy session, but why do you think that is? Is that just like a self-protective thing or is that because that's what makes it interesting to you?
1: I'd like to believe it's the latter, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a funny, there's a funny Philip Roth interview where he talks about how, uh, apparently Celine, you know, the famous anti-Semitic, uh, French writer, was apparently uh a very good doctor in real life you know like beloved by his patients uh you know kind treated poor patients but in his fiction he's a bad doctor you know he's cruel to his patients he's callous he's nasty um and that's like somehow that version of being a doctor was what interested him on the page not the nice doctor whereas like william carlos williams is a nice doctor on the page and was also a nice doctor in real life um so For whatever deep, psychologically wounded (laughs) reasons, I find it more interesting, uh, to be the jerk on the page usually. Um, and I I do, I do imagine it's self-protective on some level. Um, but I also, as a reader and a writer seem to find that posture more interesting, uh, than, than the earnest one. So,
3: and then you can go about being nice doctor or earnest doctor in real life.
1: Yeah, you know, it's like, right, maybe you can sort of like let off some of the spleen (laughs) and then like frees you up to be a kind, decent person in your regular life.
3: Uh, That sounds extremely functional, actually.
1: Uh. (laughs) Would that it were so simple. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, I was thinking about this a lot over the last few years. Um, and I, I had to write a thing, I think last year about influences and I realized that, that my engagement with that kind of thinking probably starts with, um, the beat writers who, who were really like my first love as a, I mean, I, I've always loved to read and I've always just like wanted to be a writer since I was about two years old, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> The writers who really started to speak to me once I was i don't know a teenager as as they do for a lot of people were were Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs and that whole world and they I feel like they don't get enough credit sometimes or you know credit i don't know if credit's the word in the current conversation about autofiction, at least in the American tradition because I think they really they were really doing that. Um, and, you know, and I, I, it was such a sport You know, I read every book about them. I get my hands on to figure out, okay, in this book, which which one is Ginsburg in this book, which one is Burroughs in this book, which one is Kerouac, you know? Um, and so I did have that bug from early on or the, the, the sense of freedom that those writers, the sense of permission maybe is what it is of saying like, okay, you, you can use everything, um, and you might, you know, and and for the most part, I mean, on the road, at least is, is traditional fiction. And if you didn't know the story of Kerouac and his friends, it's just a novel about some people doing things. Um, so I think even though I, I have like voraciously read Knausgaard and Hetty and Lerner, um, I always had in my mind that I didn't quite want to do. Uh, I definitely want to be in conversation with those writers as, as a writer, not as, as, I mean, critically, whatever, but uh, you know, in, in my own thinking about them, I feel like I feel myself talking to them. Um, but it became a conscious choice, especially in drafting early work to pull back a little bit on a few self-conscious meta elements that were in earlier drafts of it um, because I ended up feeling like in some ways this can stand on its own. This, this can stand as a novel that doesn't need uh, the self-reflexive gestures that, that ended up feeling like maybe that's not what this is. Like how relevant is it really that it's, that things about it are sort of like my life, you know, like why, why burden a piece of fiction with that if you don't have to?
3: Yeah. Does that that make makes sense? a lot of I, sense. Yeah. Do you mean in terms of like how you, you think about it in terms of your own, like your theory of your own book, you don't want to burden it and burden the book with that kind of self-reflexive analysis in your own process?
1: I think that was it. Like, or or like, what is, what is it gaining to be sort of pointing the reader at parallels between me, the author and the story, like the story I hope, and I think did turn out to be interesting on its own, even if nobody knew the first thing about me or, or my life or, or anything. Um, And like, like for one example, I originally had an, an epigraph that was from a Robert Lowell letter um where he's talking about how he, you know, used stuff from his marriage to Elizabeth Hardwick in his poetry uh and my editor at the time said, "You know, don't you're, you're pointing at something that isn't necessarily what you need to be pointing at." You know, like you you're asking a reader to interpret this in a very specific way if you lead with that? Like, why don't you let the reader draw their own conclusions about what they're looking Mm. at rather than saying like, this is about sort of, uh, drawing on experience.
3: Right. This is about the dialogue between this piece of fiction and the the life of the person who produced
1: it. Yeah. And and because ultimately it's funny how I spent, you know, you, you, get so immersed in writing a book and writing stories that you kind of think you're writing, you're writing the emotional truth, obviously. But I started to think like, did this, did this stuff happen? <laughs> you know, like it almost like becomes your memory. Uh, and then it's like, objectively, you know, Laura will be like, these things, this isn't true. <laughs> you know, like it's like factually not true. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. you're right. But <laughs> like, if I thought it enough, maybe like it is true, you know, <laughs>
3: Right. I mean there's a point at which in the world of the book and maybe in the world of your head while you're making the book that distinction doesn't matter or just gets so blurry that it it doesn't it's not fruitful to think about it.
1: Right. And um and in this case, you know, I mean it's it's like kind of doubly uh untrue or or sort of complicatedly true because like you know, like really the character of Leslie who's sort of the uh quote unquote other other woman in early work like she's the character closest to my own thinking in a lot of ways, and when she gets sort of her sections uh on her own, that to me is like the closest thing to a self portrait I've ever written um and so it's you know like I'm really inhabiting all these all of these people on on each side of of the love triangle um and it's like sort of silly to try to pin down uh what what my own feelings uh about them are or were.
3: Yeah, of course. I I love Leslie as a character and I find her so I I like the way she pops up throughout you throughout your work, you know, in in Cool for America and in Early Work, that she sort of we keep seeing her in different places and times. And I'm I guess I wanted to ask you about how your relationship with Leslie began. Like where did you meet her and how did you decide that she was going to be someone who was going to to revisit throughout uh this this body of work of the first two, first two books?
1: I think I think the first story I wrote, I, I know the first appearance of her in my work was in the the last, what ended up being the last story in cool for America, which is called a dog named Jesus. Um, and it's a story about uh, a woman who goes to a, a wedding at a hot springs um, that she is sort of a very last minute plus one, to, and kind of finds herself in a very unhappy situation. Uh, and I had started that story thinking it was maybe going to be a novel um, and had, and that, that story was originally like 15,000 words. Um, but so I really got to know that character and really loved her and, and also kind of thought of her as an alter ego in that story, especially. Um, and then, you know, I, I was, I don't know, my my whole process for writing is such just a mess. You know, I'm just sort of, there's sort of (laughs) like piles of characters, piles of scenes, like I'll, I don't know it's very intuitive and very uh inefficient um but you know I started writing early work I started writing this this opening scene where they they go to this uh dinner party uh and I was just sort of you know playing with the scene playing with it and there's this woman at the party and suddenly I was like oh like what if that's Leslie what if that's this character who I already know really well and I'm really interested in learning more about, um, you know, I was like almost like seduced by this character in the earlier story. Like, why don't I like find out more about her and see if she's here for some reason, you know, like see if she's in Virginia, what, you know, maybe like me, she's come from Montana to Virginia and, and this is where she's landed. Um, and so she, it sort of felt very organic in a way, in an exciting way. Like, oh, like you meet someone somewhere and then you like see them again somewhere else. And you're like, oh, hey, like, I guess you're important, <laughs> you know? Uh, like, <laughs> let's see if we can develop this and see where it goes. I think I worry in in my, I mean, I worry all the time about everything. But I think I I originally worried that I was being lazy or something maybe by having... These characters sort of in this milieu uh returning and and I do think like a something in my work that I need to either lean into or lean out of is that i you know, my characters like are all you know they they kind of share a brain in some ways or they they share a world in some ways um and so i do but 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 what i I think in that moment when I was like, oh, this could be Leslie." And that whole novel really was sort of like, don't fight the momentum, you know, like, let's like, Oh, it feels like we're going downhill. Like, let's go downhill. Like, let's like, let this work, um, rather than resisting it because it feels like, Oh, have I already done this? Is this like, is this character, uh, too familiar to me? Is this, and it was like, well, this feels right. And it feels like I know what I'm doing with this. So, and I try to tell, you know, my friends and students that too, is like, don't, if something feels like it's clicking, you know, sometimes I I resist because I'm like, this is too much like what I would write or something. Like, I wish I was like writing something else, but this feels right. So I should really like lean in and see where it goes and see what happens.
3: That this feels too much like what I would write is just like such an amazing <laughs> encapsulation of a problem that I think probably a lot of writers have. I certainly have that feeling sometime where I sit down to work and I'm working on something new and I'm like, oh God, it's just my same old shit again. Oh man, <laughs> I'm. St- I guess I'm still the one at the at the steering wheel of this situation. Shoot. Uh, but more seriously, I wanted to ask you if you do feel like an obligation, or like a real obligation, to be, I don't know, varying your tone or changing your project or avoiding whatever that perceived sameness is that you're that you're worrying about
1: i do i i do feel it and it's you know it's now been a couple of years um where i've been sort of tinkering with with scenes and situations and trying to like get the critical mass of stories and novel that is sort of where i arrived with the first two books Um, and i've you know, I've put stuff aside because I feel like, well, this is like another narrative of some length about like a brother and sister struggling with, you know, substances and politics, or this is, you know, like another close third piece about a young woman who's, you know, in the midst of a breakup and, uh, you know, like reading too much or whatever. Um, but then I don't know. But then I I don't know. I wrote a, a a story that is very much like kind of a back on my bullshit story about a like bad boyfriend coming out of rehab and like his weekend in New York with his partner. And I was like, this feels good. Like this is this is like me, but like different and interesting. Like it's like I found a new shading. So so I think it's all about that. It's like somehow I don't think I'm gonna become a different writer or person overnight but it's like somehow feeling like you're making progress and that you're not just on autopilot or doing what you know how to do but somehow you're like using that as your baseline right and then expanding on it or enriching it or finding new emotional valence to it rather than i just like hate the idea of of ever phoning it in you know
3: while you were talking you and you were talking about writing again about a brother and sister, it, it occurred to me that at the beginning of this conversation, you were talking about this transformative time where a lot of maybe stabilizing relationship ties got cut. Your family was a little bit in turmoil. You were not in a relationship. Um, and I guess I'm wondering how, how feeling variously sort of stable in your ties with other people changes your feelings of fearlessness or obligation when you're writing about your own in- interior life um, that might include inspiration from from the people you know or the relationships you hold?
1: Mm, that's such a good question um, because I've been thinking about it too, um, right, like, do you do you lose some of your fearlessness? This is the question I ask myself, like, am I am I holding back a little bit because I have these things that I want to preserve, you know, and... and exactly, yeah. Um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I always am having these conversations with other writer friends, and my advice is always like, you got to go hard. Like, why else are you doing this? You know, you've got to like be ruthless. You've got to be brutal with yourself and with everything you have. You know, you've got to use what you have and I believe that intellectually. Um, but it's also hard when you write, you know, I, some of the things I've written have hurt people's feelings. Um, some, you know, like I, I have damaged, uh, relationships and friendships. Um, it al- almost always, it's been this thing I did not expect where I was like, I thought someone might be offended by this one thing. And they were like, oh, wow, is that me? Uh, And then uh, (laughs) some some other thing that you didn't even think twice about, uh, someone could be really hurt by. Um, And so I don't know. I mean, I I think you have to try to be responsible and reasonable, but also I do think as an artist, you kind of have an obligation to to try your best to be honest and and use what you understand about the world. And, and, And so for me, you know, maybe as a more mature writer that involves like trying to find metaphors maybe, or trying to find analogies, trying to find ways of, of conveying your experience that are not quite so close to, to yourself or your own people. Um, but then, but then part of me is like, well, is that, you know, like David Gates, uh, my teacher would talk about worrying that he's pulling punches, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I do think you kind of you only get one one shot at being <laughs> a writer, I assume. And you kind of it's like, well, what are you what are you saving this for? You know, you never know what, how many books you're going to get to write or how long you're going to get to live. And so part of me feels like I want to, to be as honest and clear and do what I can do while I can.
3: Right. There's something very powerful about writing from a feeling of, well, I have nothing to lose by my writing. Um, So I'm just going to go hard, as you said. Um, But like, that's not always a very sustained, you don't necessarily want to sustain your life in a place where you feel like you have nothing to lose in your, in your writing. And so it's something I think about a lot myself too. And I'm always curious to ask people about is how you balance The feeling of like having a life where you have things you want to protect and that you care about uh, and things to lose by your writing, but while sort of maybe tricking yourself into or negotiating yourself into some different, different mode of feeling like there's fearlessness or nothing to lose when you sit down to work.
1: Right. You have to trick yourself. Um, And I think it gets harder too when you're a more established writer because I think with the first stuff I wrote, I could, you know, honestly trick myself by saying, well, like maybe nobody's ever gonna look at this. You <laughs> right. <know>? Uh, <laughs> no one's
3: ever gonna read it. So I can do whatever I, I want to.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um and now, right, it's like I'm I'm writing work that uh, you know, I hope and it's it's like realistic to imagine um people will read. Um and, and, and so I don't know. I, you know, I'm very like lucky to have, uh, a partner who is also a writer and who also believes in, in being really honest and serious about their work. Um, and so I do feel genuinely, uh, supported in that mission with the person who I'm closest to in the world and, and feel like I can take those risks and I can, uh, and at the end of the day, it's, it's words on a page and who you are as a person and who you are in your relationship is not the same as the words on the page. And that's something that, you know, we as a couple have decided and very much made a pact that, you know, you can, you can use whatever you need to use and I'm going to use whatever I need to use. And, you know, but then there's obviously like, as it extends further out from your life, you don't have that pact. Um, and you don't, and that's also a pact that isn't, written in stone you know it's one that's negotiated and continually being uh reinterpreted based on the circumstances and based on the life you have so i don't know i i i feel like i i have to be fearless i have to try um but 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 life gets in the way you know obviously you, you you feel protective of certain things and and you have to try to kind of, kind of like with the nonfiction thing, it can be just as true with fiction. You have to like find your angle, find your shading that makes it feel okay. That makes it feel like you're not exploiting yourself or exploiting people you love.
3: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner.
0: We'll see you next week.